It was a typical Friday night at Moody on my floor. A handful of us guys did not have a date. It was normal. We decided we were going to go to Jay's, which was a greasy spoon place uh, down on Rush Street. You could get a hamburger, cheeseburger, and fries and a milkshake for all like two ninety five. It was a great deal. And so we were getting ready to go. There were like six of us, and we were in the uh, lounge on our floor, and somebody suggested that we pray. He said, okay, this should take us like three minutes for us six guys if we were long-winded. About an hour and a half later, we got up off the floor. I mean, on our face, on our knees, uh, an incredible experience. And we had no, I mean, every one of us knew that we had been in God's presence. Uh, Next year, I think I was at Moody, on my knees beside my bed crying. Couldn't pray. Tried to. But the words I would say were just kind of bouncing off the walls and the ceiling. Uh, God didn't hear me. He had never been farther from me, uh, if he even existed. You know, the whole idea of prayer, fascinating topic. You know, I mean, prayer has the uh, ability to open up Pandora's box and a can of worms at the same time. You know, where we sit might be somebody when we say the word prayer and they have this angst. Oh, I'm not sure about that. Someone else, it brings great anger. I remember the one time I prayed and asked and I didn't get, or it brings a a, uh, indifference. What are we talking about again? Who cares? Or it brings great joy. Prayer does all, it brings all of these things. And if you've been walking with the Lord any amount of time, at some point you perhaps have come through a valley where you start going, you know, what's the purpose here? I mean, he knows everything, right? And he's going to do what he wants to do. And uh, I'm just wasting my time. And we decide it's a royal waste of time. We start walking away until we look at the life of Jesus. And I think we would all agree that Jesus was an incredible economizer of time. I don't think Jesus would waste any time. And yet prayer was huge for Jesus. I mean, when Jesus started his ministry, at the very beginning, he takes a 40-day prayer retreat out in the desert. And then when, you, when Jesus prayed, you need to know it was not a boring, uh, you know, God's great, God's good, thing for the food, amen, type of thing. I mean, look at Hebrews chapter 5. It says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. I mean, he was, he was crying out. He was literally crying while he was praying. When's the last time you prayed like this? I have a feeling if we were around Jesus when he was praying, it would be kind of awkward. We'd want to get away. And then Jesus decided he was going to call his his apostles. Well, how did he do that? It says, one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. It's all night prayer meeting by Jesus. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he was sneaking away to pray. He was praying all over the place. And when his apostles got into trouble, he prayed for them. So Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Simon, so that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, when Jesus was here on earth, he prayed what we have the longest prayer in Scripture, and he prayed for his disciples there, and then he prayed for us. I love this. He prayed, I think that, I want to think that he was, my picture flashed through his mind when he prayed while he was here on earth at John 17. Jesus said, my prayer is not for them alone, those apostle guys, 
I pray also for all those who will believe in me through their message. Uh, Jesus prayed on a regular basis all the time. His last few days, right? He's up in the upper room praying with his uh, apostles. They then go to Gethsemane and he goes like a stone's throw away from the rest of the guys to pray. He comes back and they're sleeping. And what does he say? Ah, what are you sleeping for? You should be praying. And then he goes back and he prays some more. And when he's praying, he's praying with huge intensity. Look at says. In anguish, he prayed more earnestly. In anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. That's some praying. And then he's on the cross. And what is he doing? He's praying on the cross. And then he, he rose and he ascended. And what's he doing today? Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He's praying today. And that's all he's ever done, it seems, is pray. And Jesus spent three years putting the gospel together. He spent 2,000 right now praying for his people. And Jesus is not going to waste time. Prayer for Jesus was not this simple uh, religious activity. You didn't do it because, you know, prayer works. You didn't do it because it's a nice thing for me to do if I want to be on this team or come to this church. Prayer for Jesus was connecting to God the Father. It was living on that vertical plane. And most of us, we just live horizontally, but it was living on that vertical plane. And so his apostles noticed that, and they saw that, and they said, Jesus, when you pray, and when we pray, it's kind of boring, and get it all wrong. But when you pray, you're living a different life, and you teach us how to do that. He said, okay. And he gave us what is known as the Lord's Prayer. We've been looking at the last few weeks, a couple more weeks left on that. But his, his goal was not to give us liturgy, something to say at, at a church service or at a funeral or a wedding. Or not bad, but that's not his goal. His goal was to show us how we could live our lives on the vertical plane, connected to God the Father, not just down here. And so he starts off and he says, well, when you, when you pray, you, you recognize who you're praying to, our Father, who art in heaven. And then he gives us six petitions. First petition, hallowed be your name. That's a, a prayer being a, having a perspective of praise. Starts with a perspective of praise. He says, it's, it's you're, you're hallowed be your name. Who you are needs to be magnified. God, first request would you magnify yourself in this world? Would your glory be seen? Would it be seen in me? So the number one request is, may I reflect your glory more? May I know you better? Second and third request he gives us, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. And so you start with the pers- perspective of prayer. And then Jesus says, as you pray, you've got to have this, uh, st- you've got to come at it from a standpoint of submission. Before you get into your requests, before you get into your confession, important things, starts with a, an understanding of, of submission to him. And then we get to the fourth petition. Give us this day our daily bread. And we say, all right, about time, right? This is what we've been looking for, this is what we've been waiting for. The other stuff is kind of ancillary, uh, uh, nice niceties, and, and don't understand what they all mean. But here, see, praying for stuff. See, it's biblical. We're supposed to do this. And I want, certainly it's true. 
Jesus, when he told us how to pray, said, make sure you pray for your daily bread. We might say, well, uh, you know, I don't need a whole lot of daily bread, but I've got other needs. And so does this, will this work for my other needs? You know, can I, can I pray for a parking place at the mall at Christmas time? Can I pray for, you know, an A in that, you know, Lord, I didn't really study, but, but, you know, you're God and stuff, and, you know, I tried, so can you just kind of help me get the A? How about a date for prom? Can I pray for that one? Pray for my house to sell. Pray for the sunshine to be out with my picnic. I don't want it to be ruined. Lord, can we pray for those things? Is it possible? What does this mean, this daily bread? Does it put limitations? What? And before we go any further, just a side note, you need to know Jesus' goal here is not to teach us what we can and can't pray for. So if you want to pray for the parking lot and the sunshine, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Okay, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Yeah, 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 yeah. So pray for this. Wonderful. But that's not what he's talking about here. Jesus is going to a different level. Jesus is trying to tell us, help us understand how to connect with the Father, how to live our lives. He's not talking to atheists here, disciples, but how to live your life, not on the horizontal plane, but connected to the Father. And he says, you need to pray, give us this day our daily bread. What does that mean? Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 6, because this is so huge. Even though we're looking at these lines independently, You cannot divorce it from the prayer. Jesus does not expect us to take it, pull it out of the prayer and and think about it outside of everything else he's already said or is going to say. You've got to see it in its context. You have to be able to interpret it in that regard. So Matthew chapter 6. It starts right at the beginning. This is how you pray, our Father in heaven. He's saying when you get to ask for stuff, make sure that you do it with this mindset, understanding who you're talking to. When you start asking for stuff, it's okay to ask for stuff. You have to do it thinking through who you're talking to. You're talking to your Father in heaven, who in Isaiah 65 says, Before you call, I will answer. Psalm 139, before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it. Before a thought comes into my head, you know it. Before I've determined what my needs are, you already know what they are. Matthew 6, he says, early in this chapter, he says, don't be like the pagans. They pray lots of words. They think they're going to inform God. Your Father knows what you need before you tell him. So we're talking to our Father. He's our Father. He's not a mean ogre. He's not someone we've got to try to twist and help us under, be good to us because he doesn't want to be. Uh, fathers, healthy fathers, are interested in the joy of their children. Right? Several years ago, uh, my boys were younger, uh, substantially younger. And uh, they were interested in video games. Believe that? I don't know if this does that surprise you. Little boys interested in video games. Now, you got to know our household. We were kind of conservative. And we really didn't want them to get involved with that too much. And we homeschooled, and so we kind of used that as leverage. Get all your homework done, and you can play 10 minutes on Nintendo. You know, that kind of thing. So, so they longed for this, and they didn't get a whole lot of it. Well, the game, Nintendo GameCube had come out the year before, and I would listen to them talk as we got closer to Christmas, and they would never ask us. They knew their mom and I were not going to drop our money on a gaming system. But I would listen to them talk, and they would talk about it, how cool it would be, and yada, 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 yada. 
And so Teresa and myself decided, this year, we're getting them a GameCube. Well, I was, you can imagine, I was very excited about this. And not that I can't, not they beat the tar on me in it today. I, I, can't, I can't play it. Uh, but, but because I knew it was important to them. And, and what we do in our house, more or less, is we give the kids three gifts at Christmas time. They got a frankincense gift, a myrrh gift, and a gold gift. This is not a biblical thing, so we use these words. But uh, the, the frankincense gift is like socks and underwear gift. You know, it's just, it's just no one wants it, but you need it kind of thing. The, the myrrh gift is kind of, you need it, but it's cooler. And then the gold gift is kind of like their, their fun gift. Well, they had opened their frankincense and myrrh gift, and there was one gift left for the boys, their gold. And they didn't know what this was. I know what this was. Well, they started tearing the paper, and when they saw what it was, uh, they went berserk. Ah, they were dancing around. Well, you can, what was Dad doing at this time? No, I'm dancing around too. I don't care about the GameCube, but I just care about the joy. You know, as parents, this is true. When you give somebody surprise, when there's lots of joy, your heart is bigger than theirs. You know, I don't think that I've got anything on God. I don't think I'm a better dad than God is. God is involved, cares for, loves the joy of his children. He does. He's not a mean, I've got to twist, I gotta, he doesn't want to, and I've got to help him see that he should be kind and nice to me. He knows. Before I ask, he loves. He's concerned for my joy as well as he's concerned for things that could hurt me as well. Uh, Jesus says when we, when we pray, we need to remember that he's our father. We ask for stuff. He's our father. And, and we need to keep in mind that we're the child. We're not the father. He's the creator and we're the created. That he's uh, holy and we are sinful. That, that, that he is infinite and our understanding is, oh, so tiny, tiny, tiny. Uh, he's, he's the father. We're the child. He says, when you pray and ask for stuff, make sure you understand that. Let me give you a scenario. you got two kids. First one comes to you and says, Dad, sorry, Dad, listen to me. I want you to give me this because I know that I need... Now, you think you know, but you don't really... You don't understand the pressure I live with. You don't understand what everyone else has got. You don't understand... How, this is really worth it. You don't think it is, I know, but I'm telling you, it's worth it. Give me this. Then child two comes to you and says, you know, I, I think I would really like this. But I thought I wanted that thing last year, too. And I got it, and it didn't last very long. The year before, there was another one. You know, I mean, I I think, but for crying out loud, I'm just a kid. You know, you know, understand. You know me. You understand trends and dollars. I think I would, but you know what? I trust you. You just do what's best. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? We would pass up. And then when we woke up, we would say, what do you do with a child who's that? They're not playing the game. They're not trying to play you. They really, it's really sincere. Don't you want to give that kid everything? Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. When we come to God, we come to him as our father. When we bring our requests, first thing we've got to keep in mind is our father. He loves us very much. He's, he's our father. Second thing we need to be committed to or we need to understand is it's all about his program. You know, verse 10 is connected to verse 11. And you can't have... 
the daily bread thing first without saying in front of that, your kingdom come, your will be done. And for Jesus, it's not just about words. <sighs> your will be done. It's a hard thing. And to have that heart thing, say, no, really, that's what I want. Here's my request. But this is really, I really want your will. Uh, it's about your kingdom. I'm not building a, a, a conflicting kingdom. It's your kingdom. Uh, if, in fact, and what Jesus is saying, if you and I, if we handle our requests, horizontal, plain requests, but with that vertical mindset, you know, we're, we're going to ask for, I think, mostly the right stuff. It, it's going to be... Uh, Nick Ripkin wrote a book, great book, The Insanity of God. I would recommend highly that you read this. Uh, Nick served as a missionary in Somalia, Mogadishu. He really got involved through his experiences with the persecuted church. He saw what he saw there. And so he went to uh, uh, interview Christians all over the world. I mean, this is a modern-day book. All over the world who have faced or are facing persecution. He goes to the uh, Chinese church. In China, there's two churches. You've got your government-run church. It's a go-kay church, but you cannot proselytize. And then there's the underground church. And so he went to the underground church. It's illegal to be there. And they went to a, a farm where several of these house church pastors met at this farm, illegally, of course, to go through some training. And so Nick met with them to train them. And he says this about that. He says, in light of what David, David was his translator, told me, I was somewhat prepared for the curious stares during supper that night, but I was profoundly surprised after supper when I was formally introduced to the group. One of the local pastors raised his hand to ask a question. What he wanted to know was this. Do the people in other countries also know about Jesus? Or is he still known only in China? Well, I had never been asked that question before or even considered that point of view. For several long seconds, I gathered my thoughts, trying to figure out where exactly to begin my answer. Then, with David interpreting for me, I told the group that millions of Americans, and even more people in different countries around the world, know about and followed Jesus. I then told the group that the believers in other parts of the world also know about them, the Chinese believers in house churches, and they pray for them. Well, wait, wait, the people cried out. They could hardly believe what I was saying. One man responded this way, Do you mean that people in your country know that we believe in Jesus? Do you mean that they know that some of us are suffering for our faith? Do you mean they haven't forgotten us and that they pray for us? I assured them that, yes, we pray for you. Well, one of the younger women in the group asked this, Since Jesus is known in other countries, are believers there persecuted like we are? I told them about the experience of believers in two very oppressive Islamic countries. The entire gathering of house church leaders in the farmyard became strangely still. Just minutes before, they'd been clapping and shouting and asking questions. Now they were completely silent and still. They sat expressionless. I attempted to enliven the group by sharing about Muslim background believers we were close to. People who had exhibited inspiring faith under the most oppressive circumstances. But there was still no movement, no questions. When I had told a number of such stories, I felt half dead myself. I lowered my voice and I said to David, that's it, I'm done, I'm drained, I have nothing more to say tonight. I stepped off the little stage in the middle of the compound and headed for the room where I was to sleep. At six the next morning, I was awakened by screaming and shouting outside in the compound. My first thought was that the security police had come. As my eyes adjusted to the daylight, 
I saw that there were no security police swarming in the compound. What I saw were those Chinese house church leaders and evangelists scattered along the farmyard, either lying or sitting on the ground, crying, screaming, and yelling hysterically, or so it seemed to me. Many of them were pulling their hair or clutching at their clothes. I spotted my friend David across the way, and I rushed over to him. I demanded to know, what in the world is going on? He told me to be quiet and to listen. You know that I don't know a word of Chinese, I told him. What do you mean, just listen? Again, he insisted, just be quiet, Nick. Before I could protest again, he took me by the arm and began to walk me among those people who were crying and screaming. Because I was now silent, I actually began to hear and recognize the names of the two Muslim countries that I had told them about the night before. The names of those two countries were being repeated again and again in passionate, anguished prayer. When David stopped and turned to look at me, there were tears streaming down his face. He said, they were so moved by what you shared last night about believers who were truly persecuted that they have vowed before God that they will get up an hour earlier every morning to pray for those Muslim background believers that you told them about in those countries until Jesus is known throughout their countries. In that instance, I could see why the number of Chinese believers had gone from a few hundred thousand to perhaps hundreds of millions. In 1940, when the communists either martyred the missionaries or kicked them out of the country, it was estimated there were under a million believers, Chinese believers. When the West was able to look back into China, 70s, 80s, they found, thinking that the church might be extinguished at this point, that there were over 100 million, 150, 200 million believers. Well, you can imagine Well, these guys get together, they pray on that vertical plane, things happen, things change, things take off. Oh, man. Oh, Jesus is saying when you pray, give us this day our daily bread. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to, Harris, you've got to pray with an understanding of who your father is. Pray with an understanding of building his kingdom. And if you pray for the horizontal stuff in that vertical plane, you're probably going to be okay with it. Now, daily bread. Interesting, daily bread. You know, most of these guys, when Jesus uh, said this, were day laborers. Uh, The way it worked, you worked for the day. At the end of the day, you got paid. It was so minimal that you really couldn't save much. You stopped off at the market on the way home, and you bought food, you ate. If you didn't get a job, you didn't eat. If you were sick for a couple days, your family was in crisis mode. I mean... Daily bread. You, this was an urgent. This was very, these guys was a felt need for these guys. Now, not everybody in the ancient world, if you had money, but the, for most of us, it, it's not right. Not, I mean, we, why should we pray for that which we probably should quit eating anyway? You know, we got, we're eating too much. Why should we pray for more? And reality is, if we look at our pantries, if we, we interpret daily bread as food, well, we've got tons of it, and we got freezers stocked with it. And if we run out of bread, not a problem. We got loaves and croissants and and rolls and pasta. We got all all kinds. We got all kinds of bread. And if we run out, we got our bank accounts. We're not Warren Buffett, but we can stop and get some money and go to Wegmans. They got all kinds of food. And we can pick out our favorite tasting ones. And if we really get hard, hard, things really fall apart. We got government assistance. We really don't need daily bread. We really don't. Not not really. Not, not, Not really. So how does that work for us? 
Jesus later on writes to the most well, one of the most well-off churches in the Mediterranean world. Folk who, maybe like us, are saying, I don't know if I've got that, that need. Revelation, chapter 3. It's the church of Laodicea. He says, I, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. These guys are probably not being cocky. They just don't. I don't need anything. I don't need anything. Now, it's not wrong for us to be affluent. And you need to know, if you're in this room, you are in the upper 1% of the world in economy. You are rich. Scripture would, would classify rich as anyone with two tunics. We, most of us are rich. It's nothing wrong. can't feel guilty about that. This is a gift that God has given us. He has dealt this to us. Uh, we got to play this hand for his kingdom's sake, not for our, our, our comfort. The way we play it, we will be held responsible. But for right now, this time in life and history, this is, this is what we've got. This is what we've got. We shouldn't feel guilty. But we've got to be aware of the dangers. Because it's difficult to play that hand. It is so, so difficult. Jesus looked at these guys who had everything. He says this. He says, but you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He says, you've got so much stuff on the horizontal plane. You've got all kinds of stuff on the horizontal plane. But on that vertical plane, you're emaciated. You're, you're malnourished. You have no relationship with me. And you think we're fine. We don't need God. You, and you don't need me if all you need is your, your, your physical things. But you need to know spiritually you're, you're nothing. And if you think of, of uh, Matthew 19, remember the, the rich young ruler's guy? He wanted to do church things. He, wanted, he liked Jesus. He wasn't opposed to Jesus. He wanted to be one of his followers. And Jesus actually offered him the, the job. But then Jesus said, you've got to go take care of your wealth. And he walked away. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it's hard I don't think Jesus is lying here, right? It's hard for someone who is rich, which would be all of us, to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Riches are a goofy thing, aren't they? You think they, they satisfy, but they don't. They make you more hungry and more thirsty for the, 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 the horizontal plane. The more you get, the more you want. And the more you get, you know what, my, my identity, my significance comes from getting more and more education and, and uh, more money and more prestige and a bigger and faster and more, and more, more. It, it doesn't satis- satisfy. If you were to think of someone who is malnourished, I mean, really close to death, they may see it just a mess. Uh, they don't have a lot of physical strength, right? You couldn't send them out to dig ditches. don't have a lot of physical strength. Uh, they probably are not thinking real clear. Uh, somebody who is, and take that to the spiritual arena, who is spiritually malnourished. Are they real effective for spiritual work? No. They think they are. Because on this, they're, they're well to do. They're like the guys in Laodicea. We don't need a thing. But they're wretched, they're poor, they're pitiful. They have no... Uh, Acts 19. 
some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priests were doing this. Now think for a minute. These guys are trying to do good stuff. There's Christian things, religious stuff. They want to serve. They're going to make a, a big impact for the kingdom. They're driving out evil spirits. But look what happens. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Don't you wonder what hell thinks about us? Yeah. When hell thinks about your name, when hell thinks about FAC, does it say, <laughs> what a joke. Those guys are fighting amongst themselves. Those guys are making secondary issues, primary issues. That guy likes materialism, and that, that gal likes her power, and they're useless. They're a joke. Or when hell thinks about you, when hell thinks about the church, does it shudder? Well, that would be really cool, wouldn't it? You know, it thinks something about us. So think, person's wasting their time. Don't need to worry about that person anymore. Don't need to worry about that place. Let them they'll just take care of themselves. Or does it shudder? Jesus is saying, Jesus, who is the bread of life, is saying, on a daily basis, daily daily basis. You need to recognize that you are dependent on me. You, you need to recognize that I'm not just focused on my horizontal stuff. You need to go to the verticals and say, I need you. Lord, I, I don't want to focus on my stuff. Thank you for what you've given me, but I need you. I need your strength. I need your guidance. My stuff is not going to protect me from hell. It's not going to protect me from this world. I need you. And Jesus says, when you pray, you need to understand and have that, that, pers- that perspective of praise. And you need to understand and have a, a st- from, from, pray from a standpoint of submission. And you need to have a disposition of dependence. I need you, Lord. And Jesus is saying, when you go to meet with the Father like this, you're really meeting with him. You're really meeting with him. Uh, there's a reason why we can depend on him. And that is simple enough that he is dependable. Psalm 31 says, In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me. For you are my refuge. This horizontal stuff is not going to protect or keep us. It's only going to be him. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. Uh, when I first went to a camp up in Wisconsin, Lake Lundgren Bible Camp, it was uh, most of the buildings were pretty dilapidated. Most of the resources. It was just a pretty wore-out place. Uh, this was in the 80s. One of the things that the, the camp had, though, was something called they called Big Rock. They didn't plan Big Rock, per se. you got to know Wisconsin is just light rolling hills at best. It's pretty much a plain. And in this camp, Northwoods, with pine trees everywhere, it's like somebody 
just dropped from the sky, this huge rock. It's not a, a mountain, but it's a lot bigger than a hill. It takes you about 30 minutes, 45 minutes to walk around it. You can climb up to the top of it. And when you get up there, you can just sit and overlook the lake and overlook the camp. Uh, last year, I was back at Lake Lundgren speaking at a family camp. And, uh, you know, everything had been fixed, removed, bulldozed, and rebuilt. Uh, oh, their cabins are new. And if, if, it, if it hadn't been bulldozed, it was remodeled. It was nice. It was hard for me to take those earliest memories at camp and make them fit in that facility. It just wasn't working. I remember going up to Big Rock, though, which is no easy feat for me to climb Big Rock. i, I got to know that. But as you sit up there, uh, Big Rock hadn't changed. The rest of the camp had changed. The big rock had not changed. And I was, it was kind of an awesome place because I realized 100 years ago, whenever this camp was started, um, believers sat up here thinking, praying, looking over the lake. After I'm gone 100 years, people will be up on that big rock overlooking the lake, thinking, praying. Everything here is going to be changed probably again by then. But big rock is going to be the same. You know, there's just something comforting in that, isn't there? Everything changes. Fashions, cars, the way you do, everything changes. But God doesn't change. He's our fortress. And when David wrote this, he was going through stuff. You know, very interesting history of Psalm 31. When Jonah was in the belly of the whale, big fish, facing some consequences for some pain, he quotes part of Psalm 31. And he's reminded of who God is. He's Asking for his daily bread. God, I I need you. I need you. When Jeremiah is in the stocks for doing what God had asked him to do, he just preached what God said, preach. And now he's in stocks. I don't know if you've ever faced injustice. Jeremiah is facing injustice. But he quotes Psalm 31. And he remembers, God is my rock. God is my fortress. I don't live in for this horizontal stuff, this vertical, horizontal stuff. I'm living for the vertical. I'm on that vertical plane. And he's reminded and he's encouraged. Jesus, when he's on the cross, quotes Psalm 31. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Now let's take Jesus out for a minute. But Jonah and Jeremiah, I wonder what would have happened had they not understood and knew who their rock was. They didn't know where to go. Jesus says, when you pray, if you want to connect with the Father, you have got to start with, with a, a prescription of, of prayer. You have to have a, a standpoint of submission. And you, you have to. You have to have a disposition of dependence on me. Or you're never going to connect. You're always going to live your life on that, that horizontal plane. And you're going to miss what life was about. May that not be so for me. May that not be so for you. Right? Amen, right?